All right. Welcome to Web Zero, where we talk about uh, building the decentralized internet from the ground up. And I'm here with my co-host, Timlek Miptev. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. So this is, you know, we've been recording this show for a little while now, and today is the first time where I really feel like I'm a professional podcaster because I've made myself a full blanket fort in my echoey vaulted room so that I can kind of, you know, get snuggled in and I feel really orally confident for the first time in a while. Yeah, we should definitely release some behind the scenes screenshots here because I'm looking at Tim reclined in full blanket fort and uh, tank top and it's it's illuminating and inspiring in this bear market. I, uh, in my podcasting fort, my cat has barricaded himself and refused to leave the room so there's a decent chance that he starts screaming or I start screaming when he's scratching me to get out halfway through the podcast. So some good behind-the-scenes features for everybody today. So today we wanted to start our conversation by looking at the top 50 to 100 coins on CoinGecko by market cap and just talking about what categories we find there, what types of protocols, platforms um, are represented there and and what's missing. Yeah, I should motivate this a little just because with you and then some other friends, I've had it come up a lot with, uh, you know, sort of people saying, well, what is there in crypto? Like, let's actually like go through this and look at the top 50 or 100 like coins. And, you know, what's actually going on here? Is there anything? How much of this is just total crap? And then if there's X project that I like, uh, you know, that I think does have some positive value, where does it fit in there? And what are its what are its market comps? So... Yeah, let's, um, I don't know, Jesse, if you look at the first, like, if we look at, like, the top 20 or so, what's your, do you have any way in your mind that you kind of bucket those? Yeah, all right, let's see what we've got. So it seems like the big categories that I'm noticing are L1s and the sort of all L1s, you know, we have Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, and then we've got Stable coins, I think, are another huge one here. USDT, USDC. Yeah, and then I guess you have some, like, I think of them all as sort of, you know, meme coins of various, like, age, which is, like, you know, coins that, like, ex- whose market value exists purely on the back of, like, a large community of holders, like, willing it to, which is, like, Ripple, Cardano, obviously, famously, like, Doge, Shiba Inu. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and I, I also, between the L1s, I generally put it as like Bitcoin and Ethereum for like the ones that are kind of seriously trying to decentralize and be money. And then all these other ones that are trying to do some variant of like, you know, oh, we're like, you know, you know, ETH is expensive. We're faster and cheaper. Something like, I think that's how I yeah. kind of categorize it in my mind, but interested how you see it. And where do we start to find anything outside of these categories? Something you might call applications or or tokens associated with a protocol that does something. Yeah. Um, now I want to like caveat by saying that I absolutely think that Ethereum and to some degree Bitcoin do something on uh, that is like right, very fair. useful and is very like technological. But I think it starts with you know Uniswap at number at number twenty three, where you know you have this thing that replaces with a lot of effectiveness centralized exchanges um, and could collect fees from that, although they haven't uh, they haven't switched that on with their token. 
Um, and then the next, the next up is you would get like Chainlink, which also you know provides a service of like feeding in Oracle data to ver- you know to protocols uh, in order to like you know know what current prices are of things. And where do we find like these lending protocols? We have um, Compound, AAVE. Oh, man. They're on there somewhere, right? Yeah, I think. People usually say it Ave, I'm pretty sure, from what I've heard it like, said, like Ave, yeah, sort of Scandinavian-ish. Um, Ave's 47. A little Ave Maria. I, I haven't heard that one yet. But um, yeah, Ave's at 47, and Compound, which used to be a lot, you know, a lot higher, is probably around like 115 or something now, give or take. Um, and those are like, you know, those also have a concrete thing you do that is novel and useful, which is you put in some collateral and you can take a loan in a different unit against it. And people, I mean, maybe like poo poo that a little, but after seeing all the issues that, um, centralized lenders had and sort of not being able to manage their collateral properly in the recent, you know, scandals basically with Celsius and three arrows capital, you know, there, there is value to that and there, they are doing something. 100%. Yeah, I think that's something that it's easy for people who are, who are outside the crypto space to forget is that there are already really useful applications to this technology, even if they tend to be within a certain sphere. But it, just because something is largely having an impact right now in financial institutions doesn't mean that that is, isn't totally revolutionary with respect to these industries. Yeah, I think we wanted to like talk about that a little because I know in well actually let me say when you look at this like thing and we break out those categories and there are a few others you could look at things like you know Decentraland sort of trying to provide metaverse real estate um you know I could get Arweave and some of the other file ones doing file storage the graph doing state lookups like there are applications sprinkled through the top of stuff but when you look at like the top of you know crypto market caps what's the most interesting to you right now I think it's definitely stable coins because those are the ones that I think have the most immediate practical use for someone who is non-technical or not necessarily in finance. Those are a, a digital currency that have utility to more or less anyone in the world with an internet connection right now. Yeah, I can I can see that. I guess like, and I had some some experiences there where, I mean, I, I appreciated them already as like just a way to store value stably and also like, you know, get stuff for funding projects. But then when I was living in Ukraine and the war started, um, you know, stable coins basically went no bid. Um, like you couldn't, you couldn't even buy them if you wanted because everyone was trying to get their hands on them to get stuff uh, you know, out of the country. Um, also Bitcoin and ETH, like just people wanted to turn physical money into uh, kind of high market cap, relatively stable crypto uh, as fat, like as fast as they could. Um, and especially because, you know, everyone was anticipating either traveling in, having to travel internally or flee the country externally. And the people who were able to have, you know, their hands on either, you know, Bitcoin ETH or like, you know, mostly people would use USDT. 
um, you know, they had a really big advantage. And I knew a lot of people who didn't have that and just, you know, had their money in a bank or even like in a lockbox. Like they didn't, it wasn't that they trusted banks, um, but it just, they weren't able to access it and had a lot of trouble with liquidity in the initial time after leaving the country. Were any people using stable coins between each other in some way? If you had access to it and someone didn't, people helping each other out, or were vendors taking anything in stable coins in this situation? Or is it more about securing your assets and being able to leave this dangerous situation? Uh, both. And so first of all, I would like, def- like until you've been in the situation of having to secure your assets and leave, that can kind of be underestimated or feels like rich people problems. But it very much is like, you know, for a lot of people, like your life savings for middle class people. That said, um, it was also heavily used for like, you know, we would have friends who were like, oh, we can't get our hands on any money. And we would send them like, you know, $2,000 in, you know, USDT. And now they were good for some time. Um, or even for getting supplies into the country and various forms of like uh, military aid and humanitarian aid. Uh, initially, a lot of the people selling that in, let's say, like Poland or uh, Czech wanted um, like bank wires. But as time went on, people got more and more comfortable with crypto for a lot of reasons after just having a lot of frustration with bank wires. And it was actually a really big part of anything sort of, you know, crowdfunding for people's needs. Like, you know, we organized buying a lot of like, uh, bulletproof vests, um, for people and like helmets and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was actually, it was extremely, there was, there was a lot of utility. Yeah. That's really amazing. And I think, really interesting way to deal with a crisis like this. But of course, I think that it has applications in in daily life as well beyond this sort of extreme situation. I was listening to Bankless the other day, and they were talking about how sending money via blockchain, USDC, is already faster, more secure, and more trustable than sending money by wire where you have to wait. The money can literally disappear. It's cheaper because the the fees are much lower. And I just started thinking about the way that this impacts my life as someone who's lived around the world. Right now, I get paid in USDC, and it's a lot easier than getting paid via wire transfer. And, you know, I remember when I first lived abroad after college, I was living in South Korea and I was leaving and I wanted to close my my bank and get rid of my institutional ties there. And I wanted to wire money back to the U.S. and close my account. And they said that that was impossible because if something went wrong and my account was gone to uh, for it to not bounce back to the money would just disappear, which is something I had never heard of before. It would just be in the ether, and I had no idea what to do about that. So, you know, what this led to was I ended up just taking out almost like $20,000 in cash and traveling the world with all this cash, slowly giving it to my to my friends to bring back to the U.S. to set to Venmo me money and, and or PayPal me or whatever. And it led to a a bunch of really stressful situations where I just had way too much money in some stressful situations. I've told you this before, Tim, but in 2014, I I was in Kyrgyzstan with a friend and we were crossing the, the border into Kazakhstan. And 
This was, you know, during the first Russia-Ukraine crisis, and I was briefly detained there for for suspicion of being Edward Snowden, um, <laughs> which, you know, Kazakhstan had just opened the the border to Americans without visas. I'm thin and and tall with glasses, and they just thought this is too much of a coincidence for this you know, <laughs> guy to be sneaking in with $7,000 in cash to not just be Edward Snowden. So I, they, I eventually, I think they just eventually Googled what Edward Snowden looks like and realized that I wasn't him, but it, it was a big hassle and, and it would have been a lot better if I could have just sent all my money home via stablecoin. Yeah. So I guess like and I, this sort of, you know, at least locks in this baseline of of value. Um, I think we'll probably get to this later in the pod, but even though I've just given all these examples of how useful stablecoins are and you have, I honestly find it like sort of unbearably unimaginative and cynical to like just focus on them to the point to the point where I actually think it's like the way that, you know, the kind of U.S. bureaucratic apparatus has re- like reacted to crypto, where basically they're like, this funny money is kind of stupid. But you know what? Stable coins are good. We like, you know, we're going to focus on regulating them. Maybe we should even have our own stable coins like CBDCs. And I don't know. I think I, I want to talk about the other stuff that there is in crypto, which to me is a lot more exciting because I think that whenever you have a new technology, the first things that people do with it and that they get and that have value are very often not the most exciting and powerful things, even if they are very useful to like, you know, publishing stuff on the internet and being able to post stuff on websites um, or very basic forms of shopping. Like those were great. Those were very powerful. They're definitely not like what we use the internet for primarily today in a lot of ways. And so I think it's interesting to sort of keep moving through and looking at what there is right now and seeing, I think we're going to have a lot of dissatisfaction with what's there. And that's where it gets interesting to see like, you know, where stuff could go and how. So what, like, I'm actually just interested in your, in your perspective before we like do anything. What do you think about let's say BTC and ETH or a world in which let's say, let's imagine a world where, you know, ETH gets to $10 trillion in market cap. Um, and also is like, you know, paying, you know, um, very high real yield, uh, because of, um, staking after the merge, like, you know, yield in a deflationary asset. Like, how do you feel about ETH in that world? And what, like, what role is that serving for you, you know, from like a money perspective? I think that being able to move money around easily and cheaply already has all these use cases that we talked about, and having that be something that I can do with my friends and family and not just my people who are technically aligned would be really useful and interesting. But I think what I envision in a world where Ethereum or another L1 has achieved that sort of mass adoption is more creative uses of the technology than just purely financial arrangements. Interesting. So I think like in your case, if I was going to put words in your mouth, the interesting thing about, let's say, ETH hitting a $10 trillion market cap would be that you have this very secure base layer with ETH and stable coins assumed as money in various forms, serving, you know, maybe a risk on and a risk off function. And then you're able to do lots of other stuff because you can kind of trust that layer and it's fairly hard. Is that like a sort of a good summary? You're you're putting the exact words in my mouth that I wanted there. 
I mean, you know, what I what I really meant is just that I think that for something to for Ethereum to reach that sort of adoption, it it's going to need to offer people even more than just this trusted way to move money around or engage in finance because everyone is really set in their ways. It's hard to get people out of their inertia. So, you know, my questions always turn into, all right, we already have these really interesting use cases, but what drives this forward? Can we be more ambitious than this? Yeah. And so I think in that sense, most of, and it might be a story for another day, I would push back at parts of that narrative, especially having lived in a lot of non-US parts of the world where, not, not even that they're particularly unstable, but just seeing how much instruments that probably shouldn't bear this load get repurposed as financial savings tools, like things like real estate, particularly in like Asia, um, uh, you know, former Soviet Union, stuff like that, even more than the US, it just becomes people's sort of primary unit of saving and it it causes some weird distortion in housing markets. Um, But leaving that aside, I think, um, I guess what, I think you would say in that case that the rest of the crypto market caps is like not that exciting to you because it seems very, very, very like financially oriented, right? If we're talking about lending, swapping tokens, et cetera. Yeah, 100%. So that actually kind of gets into this stuff that I was, uh, you know, kind of spicily tweeting about on Twitter today (laughs) um, a lot, which was basically about cynicism in crypto. Because I think as we've talked about this a lot, I've clarified this concept of two forms of cynicism in crypto and not, not to, you know, jump on you, but I felt like I was kind of getting a vibe and trying to put my finger on it. And I think in this case, it was that you were falling into this category of cynicism that I I would call like, um, you know, I call it like the Eeyore form, but you could also call it like kind of low expectations. You, you wouldn't be the like, first to accuse me of having some Eeyore-esque qualities. Yeah, and so I was kind of like contrasting like, you know, yours with like narrators, uh, where like narrators <laughs> are, you know, the more familiar crypto cynics who kind of ride the bull market, pump everything up, you know, they're quote unquote profit maximalists. Uh, they're chasing like, uh, or in some, in many cases, like creating the new, like the newest narratives. And then I was saying like the Eeyores are this thing of like, um, oh, well, you know, I guess like, you know, maybe stable coins work. Uh, are there any use cases yet? Wake me up when there were when there are use cases. And it feels mean to kind of shit on Eeyores. But I kind of want to do it a little bit because I actually think that it, in some cases it it misses the point. But before I before I do that, like. Would you classify yourself to a like to a large degree as like a you know let's say crypto crypto cynic in the sense of uh, you think there's like a few useful things but like everything else is like falls in the I'm highly like skeptical of it category. I think I default towards skepticism in general, and this is no exception. I think that what frustrates me is less the the state of the space at large than some of the dialogues about it. I I find it, I just mm. have a hard time getting excited about some things that people, I think, mostly pretend to be excited about. You know, the, the JPEG NFT communities 
and mm-hmm. in increasingly efficient trading, you know, fine, but don't pretend that that is something that it's not. So it's not that I think that these other ideas are impossible to achieve. I, I just, like I said, I think we, we can be more ambitious. And I, I save my precious excitement because I have so little of it. I save it for <laughs> the stuff that really matters to me. Okay, so given that your excitement is precious, like, how do you decide whether to allocate it? Because despite all of that skepticism, um, you are working, you know, primarily in Web3, and it's, it seems like there's something more than just a paycheck. Like, there's, like, something fun for you in this, like, sphere or something that's interesting. And so I think, like, it's, it's actually just really fascinating for me to get my hand on what that is. And for someone who is, you know, a little bit more your cynical um, <laughs> and who distrust, who distrusts like the, you know, three arrows capital, like narrator, like cynic types. Um, well, it's, you know, it's not really a decision fear? to allocate my excitement. It's, you know, it's a feeling of being moved, Tim. It's in the emotion. <laughs> it's, it's the act, the excitement itself. I, but I think what I really, what I mean there is I think as someone who is not a developer who lives more in the world of, of telling stories, um, even as a writer in the crypto space for a, a crypto company. I think what really gets me excited is when people that I trust, intelligent people, are excited about something. And I think that is what separates some of these other just pump it up um, enthusiasm from the type of thing that interests me is it, there's a, something genuine about it. You see people who really know the space, really care about something and believe that it, that it can work. So even if it's not a really super tangible daily use case, even if it's something that's infrastructure, I think that when people I trust get really into something, that's exciting and you want to believe it and you want to help move it forward and push it forward and believe that the 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 new dawn is is right on the heels of whatever this project is. So that gives me kind of two things I want to talk about. One, I want to like just explore me telling you about why I feel that or where you know where it goes next. But I also wanted to like go back in time a little because I do think that there's there's some valid cynicism since we were both around in the ICO era, but I think we both felt a little bit differently about it, which is in some ways like the ICO era felt less cynical than now. Because, like, you you remember that then, but it felt very much like... Um, I mean, how did you feel about what people were looking to do in terms of, like, applications well, it, it was crypto? ambitious, you know. It, it, it believed... People believed that we are right in the middle of the, of the revolution that it seems like is going to take a bit longer. And there certainly were these pump-and-up, drive-it-up, take-advantage-of-all-the-money-coming-in you know, that sort of mindset, you know, the idea that all our worst crimes are committed out of enthusiasm. But I think that there was a real sense that people wanted to build game-changing applications. And I, I appreciate ambition, certainly. It's one of the things that I find most interesting. And so it, that's not to say that infrastructure and, and middleware or, or new systems can't be ambitious and, and complicated, but it, it, it lacks the, the glittering vision of an, you know, a, a, a speech by a good Soviet leader. Yeah, yeah, and there were, you know, 
too many of those to count. Um, so I think there's like there's probably a synthesis here, which is looking looking now because like when I look now at what's missing from the current uh, market cap, it feels a lot like um, there are a lot of these infrastructure type things that need to enter there in order to enter like that next phase. So I could, if I was going to go through, I think that, you know, Optimism and Starkware have just released tokens in the roll-up space. Yeah. Which is super exciting. Yeah. I think it, I think it is just because, well, A, I think those are like both very legitimate projects. I think like, you know, they work. I've used, you know, we're doing Ukbar now and to do our, you know, allocations uh, for, you know, people investing in the project. I wrote an Optimism contract and deployed it. And, you know, I'm not super bullish on writing stuff in Solidity or to the EVM long term, but given that, like, you know, I know how to do that and it was there, it worked really well in Optimism. It lowered, you know, it lowered fees, and I do feel, like, very good about it, you know, being there in terms of, like, you know, ETH security. And uh, sort of a similar story with Starkware, but doing, you know, doing different stuff. And I would really like to see a lot of these, like, in my opinion, kind of pumpy, narrative-driven Alt-L1s uh, get replaced by what I see as, you know, much more solid, fundamental tech in the form of roll-ups. Yeah, I, it really seems like that's going to happen in the next few years, that the momentum is is shifting away from L1s that make trade-offs on either decentralization or security just to for in the name of so-called scalability, and that L2s and rollups really are going to take a big position, at, at least in res- with respect to market cap in the near future. Right. And for smart people right now, I think the rollup design space is really interesting because I think smart, ambitious people get really excited whenever one of these kind of pumpy, cynical narratives, like, you know, let's just reduce decentralization and have transactions go fast, gets replaced by, oh, now we can start making some really interesting, tough decisions on how to make various trade-offs in the roll-up space to get the speed we want, uh, the security we want, etc. So it's, it's an extremely, like, mentally engaging time. And I know, like, you've been writing some about that, and I've been onboarding you to that. So I'm, I'm guessing you can, you know, feel a bit of that, like, mm-hmm. in terms of how people are feeling. Certainly. Um, well, so what else, what else do we see as categories? Cause we've talked in our earlier episodes a lot about, um, you know, Urbit and about putting like operating systems into stuff. And for that middleware infrastructure at protocol OS category, man, there's, there's not much in the top. Like which, what was that project you asked me about the other day? I interact computer. Like, go through Oh, yeah, and, like, right, and obviously this is one of those things where it obviously was very big in terms of investment that it got, but, like, I actually had to go and look it up and see what had, like, gone on with it over time because it felt so irrelevant Um, and, like, not not doing anything, but I guess it is an example in theory of what that category would look like on here. Um, and then you have Urbit, which is, you know, uses NFTs and monetize, like monetizing that as like, um, as the thing, as like, uh, the thing that would move it, like that would move it up the charts. Um, but it's, it's very, it's a very like open thing where when I look at those charts, it's like, oh, there's a lot of like, you know, there's a top 10 project here that should be here that doesn't exist yet in terms of like trading that way. 
All right, Jesse. So we've said that, like, you know, there's these two kinds of cynicism that hinder crypto development. And one is, like, you know, the people who just are in it for a quick pump and are, you know, riding and creating narratives. And then there's the people who react negatively to that and almost turtle up uh, into their your donkey shells um, to mix metaphors. And <laughs> I guess given that you naturally fall into that category somewhat and you've been a little bit burned by the ICO era, even though it was pretty exciting. What would it take for you to get excited about the types of applications you see in these like, you know, crypto lists or that you see coming out? I think it would need to be something that offers a sort of day-to-day utility that is easy to access for a relatively non-technical user and and can't just be summarized as X on the blockchain. I think I'm reminded of some of the early, you know, Uber style startup area when everything was like, you know, it's it's Uber for fridges. It's Uber for plants. I think that you you want to find something that needs to be on the blockchain and enable something new at the same time. Yeah, and you you've said that to me a lot, so I, I kind of thought you would, you know, you would come with that. So I have a little bit of a, you know, a rant here of where I think that that approach is correct and where it's misguided and where it's going. So I think a lot of our listeners will know who Paul Graham is. Um, he's the guy or uh, one of the founders of Y Combinator, which is obviously, you know, probably the most successful inc- like startup incubator, um, you know, has written a ton about, um, you know, the startup process and stuff like that. And one of my favorite things he ever wrote, uh, just because it keeps coming up in my head, was his idea of like sitcom startup ideas, uh, which is that like, you know, trying to come up with ideas for startups, or in this case, like blockchain applications, very often leads to these, what he would call like sitcom startup ideas, which is like, imagine he said, well, I'll just quote him, you know, imagine one of the characters on a TV show was starting a startup. The writers would have to invent something for it to do, but coming up with good startup ideas is hard. It's not something you can do for the asking. So, unless they got amazingly lucky, the writers would come up with an idea that sounded plausible, but was actually bad. And so this is this like, really tricky area because we're trying, you know, I I have this intuition um, based on, you know, a lot of facts and like technical, um, you know, elements that there's a lot of promise in blockchain stuff. But if you ask me just to think of a, you know, amazing use case off the top of my head, I'm probably, you know, at worst, I'm not going to be able to, or I'll say Uber for cats, um, but at best, <laughs> I'll come up with something that sounds really like really good, but is actually a terrible idea and has no product market fit. So it's this weird like you know chicken and egg where you need cool like you know good applications in order to drive demand for blockchains and make any of this like worthwhile at all. But you can't convince people at the start that like any of it is valuable uh, without showing these things. Now. I think there are there 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 are ways around that, and there are historical ways around it. Um, but before I you know get into what I think those are, I'm actually just curious what your reaction to this is. I think it makes total sense, right? I, it comes down to making new businesses is hard. If it wasn't, people would just do it all the time. I have never really fancied myself an entrepreneur, but at times when I've wanted to throw writing away, I've sat down and said, what 
what's a business? <laughs> what is something that I could start and do and care about? And it just, I just draw a complete blank. And this is, you know, it doesn't matter how many times something new comes out and I think, God damn, how did I not have that idea? How did I not think of that? You sit down to do it and it feels just totally impossible to do out of whole cloth. Even if someone says, all right, here's this new exciting tool, go build with it. Build what, right? So, Tim, if we agree that making new businesses is hard and coming up with ideas that are both creative and effective are hard, where do we go from here? How do we push this forward? We're working in this space and we want to be creative and ambitious. What are the barriers? What do we need to do to push ourselves to the next step? So generally, if you have a new market and it's sort of stalled or it's not happening, um, this is usually an indicator that there's some blocker to developer creativity because it's very hard to have these new applications come from the top down. And so I think a lot of almost debugging has to, yeah, sure, that's a really good way to put it. I think um, a lot of effort has to go into debugging what's blocking developers. Why are new people not just coming out of the woodwork and saying, here's my cool application? And I want to give examples of where that is happening. I think that companies like Starkware with StarkNet have done a really good job enabling developers, and they do get developers coming out of the woodwork. I don't think that that product on its own is enough to drive a lot of these applications, but I'll note that they are seeing things like new applications. They're seeing more game developers, people using uh, the blockchain to encode uh, the full physics of worlds or something and sort of commoditize that and make a game into it where stuff can exist. So the first thing I would be looking for is what is blocking crypto developers from innovating and from permissionlessly coming up with cool stuff? I mean, that's that's exactly the question I'll turn back on you. What is blocking them? And I'm, I'm curious with respect to Starkware, what have they done to create an environment that even if not perfect is giving developers more leeway and creativity and removing the barriers to that sort of productivity? So in their case, they've done two things that I think are really good. One, they've made something that's new, meaning that if you take uh, Optimism and Arbitrum, as, and I, I think very highly of those projects, uh, they're basically letting you run existing ETH applications at, you know, 10, maybe eventually 100 times cheaper. That's not enough to really drive, like, a change in what's available to developers. Whereas Starkware has, like, drastically expanded the amount of computation that you can do just because of how their model works. And that's opened up these, you know, game-type use cases or financial use cases um, of, like, trading with order books, stuff that has, a lot, like, a lot more going on. So I think that's the first thing they've done. They've created new primitives. Uh, the second is they've done a really good job of making uh, their stuff, so I'll call it permissionlessly accessible to developers, meaning you can just go on their site and, or I guess I would say 
um, autodidactically accessible to developers. Mm-hmm. You can just go on their site, play with docs, and start coming up with random stuff. And they definitely do have people, including you know at Ukbar, we played. I played with their stuff and made some prototypes for some zk verification we wanted to do for our um, our own VM and transaction engine. And then just came to them and said, "Oh, look, we made this. What do you think? Uh, can you help us with it?" And that's when that starts to happen. That's you know a real indicator that you're on the right track. Yeah, that's really exciting and, and makes a lot of sense. But you know, Starkware alone is is not going to solve this problem. There needs to be other systems in in place. So, what what comes next? I think when I look at crypto Twitter now, everyone I think correctly is converging on the idea that there's a missing infrastructure layer. And we're missing what they call middleware or tooling, but I think is actually sort of a generalized application protocol. Like basically, how do different applications in crypto talk to each other? Um, how do they, you know, control their own um, environment and state and talk to other network participants, even off-chain, and then get access to on-chain whenever, whenever they want it? So, you know, without burying the lead too hard. This has been one of the biggest things that we're working on in Ukbar, uh, is taking first a strong application bedrock in Urbit that lets you write peer-to-peer applications that is a full operating system for all the things you need to do in terms of authentication, storing the state of your app, uh, upgrading it. And then we're trying to add on-demand blockchain state access. And this is something that doesn't really exist right now. And because it doesn't really exist right now, I think it has a chance of becoming an interesting primitive. And then in the same way as Starkware, it's going to be really important for us to make that autodidactically accessible to developers so that stuff can just start happening. More or less what you're saying we're trying to do is to create an environment that an interested, excited developer can encounter and begin to play around and begin to express their creativity and not run into these artificial barriers that slow them down. And in that way, it will be possible for them to really feel the technology, play with it tactically and see what that enables rather than bringing ideas and preconceived notions to a technology that it might not fit and saying, how do we make this work? Yeah, you're sounding like extremely and surprisingly non-cynical there. And I think I hadn't put it into these terms before, but I think that's how you unlock, uh, you know, how you turn cynicism into action and optimism is you believe in what individual developers can make if they're given the tools for that. And if they're given, like, a thing, like, it's not enough for smart people to like like something or be interested in it. There also has to be a mechanism for turning that interest and liking into something something more. And so I think the reason that I'm currently very optimistic is that I think blockchains have a ton of power, uh, especially, you know, what we've created in terms of, like, constructions like ETH rollups. And I also think that uh, Urbit has a lot of power. And those two things, uh, both on the scaling side and then on the Urbit actually working right side, are converging really fast. And I'm getting more and more optimistic because there's this convergence of power with interest in a way that feels very explosive. 
Mm-hmm. I think that this sort of enthusiasm is exactly what I was talking about before. It's really easy to be optimistic about something when you're surrounded by people who are all charging forward, building new applications. And frankly, people on Urbit are chomping at the bit for easy blockchain integration and the ability to build these composable systems that work with each other and they're able to encounter on their own terms rather than having to fit themselves into some sort of preconceived notion about what blockchain can do. And I think that what's really exciting about this is a system that's easy to learn and easy to use and offers itself to people openly will begin to attract not just early blockchain people, but developers and creative minds in general who would be able to see new applications and and new use cases because these barriers have been removed. Did you see the thing in our Ukbar chat the other day where unprompted by us and do us doing this episode, one guy like just wrote like, you know, 75% of the ideas that I want to make on Urbit like require blockchain access and it's like not easy to do. Uh, What is Ukbar doing about that? Yeah, exactly. It was it was really exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, we're we're doing that. We're trying to make it happen. Yeah, and I, I know that guy well. Um, and he's a you know sort of extreme autodidact, almost like uh, recluse who's extremely productive. And I love him, but he's like you know very much on this line of person who you sort of appears and you never knew that they had these applications in their head or these desires, and then you just sort of start to see them come. So I don't know. I mean. Unchain the beast. Yeah, no, it's um, there very much are some um, some beasts there to be unchained. <laughs> um, I guess we started all this by talking about like you know what the current crypto market cap like rankings look like, and I'm interested in your conclusion. Mine is basically that we sort of see a few interesting primitives sprinkled in and fortunately i think capturing most of the economic value so base layer highly decentralized layer ones like you know ethereum um stable coins with about you know 100 150 billion dollars in them right now and then a few financial applications and in my opinion that's enough of a base to get me excited that if we produce this other stuff um it'll have something to latch on to. Because actually it would be kind of a tragedy to have all this these applications in orbit work and people want to build stuff and then have the global consensus layer not ready to handle that. And in a lot of ways that would be just as bad. But I don't know, what do you think after this walkthrough, what there is right now? How do you feel? Well, it does feel like we're on the verge of a fundamental change in what is constituting the places that are receiving a lot of energy, money, and attention in the crypto space. I think in particular, we talked about moving away from some of these all L1s to roll-ups and tools that are enabling a new type of experience for developers in particular. But I think something I've been considering here is that maybe in the future, market cap might not even necessarily be the right way to examine these things. I mean, market cap in itself is a very finance-centric way to look at what blockchain can do and is in some ways itself a viewpoint trapped in this old narrative. So I think that I'm interested to see what happens once the focus isn't only on tokenizing everything and building up a, a product that can 
be top 20 on CoinGecko and when the emphasis is, all right, let's sit down with this technology, let's play around, let's be in the sandbox and see what happens. And I, I think that that is coming. It's, it's around the corner. I wanted to push back on you there, and then I like decided as you were talking that you were basically right, um, <laughs> and that I've been overly, overly infected by this kind of narrator pumper type cynicism where you you are overly focused on how much stuff is worth as an indicator of its value, and I think that and I was trying to square that in my mind with okay, but I do believe that you know there has to be stuff of like enough money in the ecosystem for certain things to be possible. And I think the way that I, you know, was squaring that circle in my head as you were talking is it actually makes a lot of sense because you can imagine like there just being a lot of money in big chunky things like, you know, ETH, stable coins, some top like top roll-up protocols and like you know a few other big financial protocols, but then really having a lot of apps happen that are using those but don't see the need to tokenize and are either normal equity companies or tokens that don't like, you know, that aren't as focused on pumping or just revenue being created. Yeah. You know what? You're, you're kind of selling me that like, I, w- I want to start like optimistically pushing for a world where we really stop caring about market caps uh, and more just, you know, the, have the, you know, the value that exists in crypto be the water we swim in. And then we're making like apps around that. Yeah, I, I great. I finally convinced you of something. We'll we'll note this down one of the first times here. No, that was actually also going through my head. Like I can't you know recall like a time in crypto where you know Jesse convinced me of something. So this is <laughs> this is very this is like a big moment. It feels like the student is becoming the teacher. So on that mm-hmm, note, mm-hmm. we should also you know say our we should we'll we'll list them in the pod, but we should also give where you can find us on Twitter because I make a point of trying to post interesting threads like at least once a day and you know you're fairly active as well so i'm there under my pseudonym of like basile genève at you know handle basile sportif you can find in the notes um this long backstory there jesse is you're bitchel ritson right i'm bitchel r so uh we'll we'll include links uh on the show page and make sure that this is all accessible but feel free to come say hi argue with us Call us idiots, and uh, we'll we'll take it with a grin. Bitchel, Bitchel R is exactly the correct way to do it. I actually think of Urban Handles, especially Planets, as a first name and a last name when I'm remembering them. And I think it makes <laughs> them feel a lot more... Like, I'm not usually Tim Look Miptev. I'm Tim Look. And then the Miptev is, you know, in the same way that you might... Formal for your... For, when you have to show up in court. If my if my mom is mad at me. Yeah. Tim Look yeah. Miptev, get over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I, uh, have, I've been telling my friends about Urbit and my identity as Bitchel Ritson and I, you know, the people think it's a great name. They think it's got a lot of strength, a lot of power and I, I couldn't agree more. So everyone get on Urbit, get your, your new identity and start, start taking over the world with it. All right, everyone, thank you for listening, and make sure to connect with us, like and subscribe, and come listen to the next episode of Web Zero next week. Thank you.